0: Lord, we come before you, God, I pray with humble, teachable hearts, Lord, that we would receive from you, that you would fill us with your spirit and guide us through your word. Lord, we know we can't understand the spiritual book without the power of the living God. So we ask, God, that you would enlighten the eyes of our understanding, that you would speak to our hearts and minds, Lord, that you would challenge us through this text as we discuss freedom and what biblical freedom is. I pray that you would give us the power not just to understand it, but to walk in it, Lord. So we love you because you first loved us. And we thank you for this time to get together and understand who you are and what your word says today, Lord. So I pray, God, that you would bless this time that we have in Jesus' name. Amen. Lastly, Last week, anyways, we discussed a tale of two covenants, right? We had uh, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Paul, he gives us an illustration to help us understand the Old Covenant versus the New Covenant. And he does this through childbirth, right? We had Abraham. Abraham had Hagar, when he wasn't supposed to, which produced Ishmael, who was a slave because Hagar was a slave. So he says this is a picture of the old covenant. It's a covenant of slavery. It's a covenant that ultimately leads to bondage. And then you have the new covenant, which we see a picture of the new covenant through Isaac, the son of promise. This is a work that God would perform, not a work of man, a work of God. And he says that you're either... A child under the Old Covenant or you're a child under the New Covenant where the Old Covenant leads to bondage. The New Covenant leads to freedom. Freedom. What's freedom? When we think of freedom in America, what do we think of? We think of the freedom of speech the freedom of assembly, the freedom of religion. We think of the freedom to vote. Freedom is this amazing gift that we have as Americans. But when most people in America think of freedom, they think of this individualistic freedom. It seems that most Americans consider freedom as the freedom to be left alone. The freedom that we see in this world, this worldly freedom, this carnal freedom is really focused on self. We want to do what we want to do, when we want to do it, and we don't want anyone else to tell us anything different. We want the freedom to pursue pleasure regardless of the cost. However, this type of freedom... Is not biblical freedom. And we're going to see here in Galatians chapter 5. That Paul is going to help us understand. The freedom that is offered to us. Through and only through the grace of the gospel. The title of this teaching. Is the freedom of grace. The freedom of grace. To determine whether freedom is worth having or not, we first have to consider what type of freedom are we talking about? Because there are different types of freedom. Generally speaking, you have the freedom of the world and the freedom of the Lord. See, the freedom of the world is focused on self, whereas the freedom of the Lord or the freedom that's offered through the Gospel, it's focused on Jesus and it's focused on others. The freedom of the world world must be fought for the freedom of the gospel is simply received the freedom of the world is actually no freedom at all it's just another form of bondage but the freedom that's offered through the gospel this is true freedom this is sincere freedom this is genuine freedom True freedom can only be experienced through a relationship with Jesus Christ. When we put our faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. His death and resurrection then and only then can we truly experience freedom. You might think, well I was born an American, so I was born a free man or a free woman. The Bible actually teaches us the opposite, that we were born into bondage. If we want to be freed, we gotta be put, we gotta put our faith in Jesus Christ, and the moment that we put our faith in Jesus Christ in that moment, we experience freedom. We experience freedom from the bondage of sin. We also experience freedom from the consequences of sin. Now Paul, Here in this text, for the majority of this chapter, he's going to discuss what freedom should look like in a believer's life. We're going to enter into the third section of the outline of this book. If you remember, the first two chapters are about Paul's personal experiences with grace. Chapters 3 and 4 discuss the doctrine of grace and chapters 5 and 6 are all about the personal application of grace this is how Paul experienced grace this is what the Bible says about grace this is what I do with grace chapters 5 and 6 so we're going to look at what we do with grace and how the grace of God ultimately leads to a freedom that this world cannot offer let's look at it It's Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. He says, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. This is point number one. Stand fast in the freedom that Christ offers. Stand fast in the freedom... That Christ offers. We were all born into slavery. We were all born into bondage. We were born into the bondage of sin. We were born into the bondage of death. And we were born into the bondage or dominion under the devil. The bondage of sin, death, and the devil. And we see only through the gospel of Jesus Christ can we be delivered. Can we be freed from those three things? Paul already discussed this in part. If you flip back, might be on the same page in your Bible. But in Galatians chapter 4 verse 3, he says, Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. We were in bondage to sin. We couldn't help from sinning and sinning and sinning some more. We couldn't help it. Why? Because we were born with wicked hearts. It's part of our carnal nature. We were born this way. And this is the problem with mankind. This is the problem with the world. To solve the problems with the world. It's not going to be through an economic solution. It's not going to be through a political solution. The problem with the world is the human heart. It's the heart of man. The heart of man is wicked. And the heart of man can only be changed by the grace of God. The heart of man can only be changed through the gospel of Jesus Christ. This world is always going to have problems. Until the heart of man... Is changed. See, Jesus, He offers to change the heart of man. There's gotta be a change of heart. All the behavior modification in the world cannot change the heart. Only Jesus can change the heart. So, how does Jesus offer to change the heart? Well, He offers it through the acceptance of His death, burial, and resurrection. When we accept the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're accepting a change of heart. We're accepting Jesus to come in and change our hearts. He says it like this. In John chapter 8, verse 34. Jesus answered them, most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever. We were born as slaves to sin. But a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Only Jesus offers the freedom from the bondage of sin. Why? Because only Jesus can change the human heart. He's the only one that can do it. I can't change my heart. I can't change your heart. You can't change your own heart. You can't change your kid's heart. You can't change your wife's heart or your husband's heart or your friends or your family members. You can't change anyone's heart. I can't change anyone's heart. But Jesus, He can change the heart. He can radically change the heart. And this is what He offers. And only through a change of heart can we be delivered from the bondage of sin. See, Jesus... He offers this freedom. He offers this deliverance from the bondage of sin. He offers it to everyone. Freedom is offered to all, but it's not guaranteed to all. Freedom is offered to all, but it's not guaranteed for all. Why? In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17, it says, Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom, meaning Where the Spirit of the Lord isn't, there isn't freedom. If the Spirit of the Lord isn't in your heart, then you're in bondage. But if the Spirit of the Lord is in your heart, then you are declared free. If you have the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of you, you've been delivered from the bondage of sin. Well, well, why do I keep sinning? Why do I keep falling back into the same things? You have the power of freedom living inside of you, but sometimes we don't access the power. Sometimes we don't walk in the power. Sometimes we don't use the power. Sometimes we don't ask for the power. See, God, he's given us the power to walk in freedom. But walking in freedom, it ultimately comes down to choices. It comes down to decisions. I can choose bondage or I can choose freedom. But Paul says it like this. Look back at Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. He says, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. He says, stand fast. This is in the present imperative verb sense uh, tense, sorry. This means a, a continuous act. This means, in order for you to experience freedom, it's imperative that you stand in it. That you stand fast. Fast in it. In other words, keep standing in freedom. Stand firm in freedom. This isn't one act of standing up. This is a lifestyle of standing up. Standing in freedom is a lifestyle. It's not one decision. It's consistent decisions throughout the rest of your life. And if you want freedom, it's imperative that you stand. And you don't sit down. Don't sit down on your faith. you got to keep standing. Well, sometimes standing for long periods of time, it hurts. Uh, My back starts aching. My legs start aching. Uh, I grow weary. Uh, I want to sit down. And over time, that chair looks more and more attractive. Once you sit down, you're no longer walking in freedom. Sometimes it's painful to stand. But I'd rather stand in freedom than sit down in bondage. And this is what he's getting at. If you want to experience freedom, you've got to continue to stand. Even when it hurts, even when it's painful, even when it's difficult. He didn't promise that obedience would be easy. No, He promised it would be difficult. Freedom is offered to all, but it's not guaranteed to all. Part of it's on us. Jesus delivers us. He gives us the power to stand. But we've got to choose to continue to stand. Jesus, he doesn't just offer us the freedom from sin. He also offers us the freedom from death. See, due to the sin of Adam, we are all born mere mortals, meaning that every single one of us is going to die. Unless the Lord comes back beforehand, every one of us is going to die. Enoch and Elijah were exceptions, but... The chances of you individually getting taken up to be with the Lord are slim. Okay, Two out of how many billions of people that have walked the earth. Point is, because of Adam's sin, we are under, or at least born under, the bondage of death. We're promised death. However, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we can be freed from death. We can be freed from the consequences of sin. He says it like this in Romans chapter six, verse two, Paul speaking. Sorry, verse twenty two, he says, but now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. So not only are we freed from the bondage of sin, but we're freed from the consequences of sin, meaning we don't have to face death. Jesus says in John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Believe in me and you shall not die. You'll pass from death to life. You'll spend eternity with me. You don't have to face the consequences of your sin. You can be forgiven from all that. You can be freed from all of that. You can experience eternal life. Jesus died on the cross, not just to deliver us from the bondage of sin, but also the consequences of sin, death. But not only that, Christ offers freedom. From the devil. See, we were born, Ephesians 2 says, as children of rebellion. We were born under the God of this world, Satan. We were born under his dominion. We were born under his authority. We were born under his influence. But Jesus, he died on the cross to deliver us from the bondage of the devil. Let me show you. It's Hebrews chapter 2. In Hebrews chapter 2 hebrews 2 verse 14 it says and as much then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death that is the devil and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage we were in bondage under the devil And Jesus died on the cross, defeating principalities and powers, triumphing over them so that we would no longer be under the dominion of the enemy. So that we no longer would have to give into the influences of Satan. That's why John says in 1 John 4, 4, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. He's in the, the Holy Spirit who dwells in you is greater than the accuser. He's greater than the tempter. And He can give you the power to overcome temptation. To walk in victory. See, Jesus, He offers this deliverance. He offers this type of freedom. But it says back in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. God only frees those who want to be free. He only makes those free who desire to be free. He doesn't force freedom. He doesn't force you to walk out of your jail cell of sin. He doesn't kick you out of your prison. He invites you out. He says, I got the keys to open the door. Do you want to walk out? There's the door there's life beyond this there's a life different than this there's a life that you you don't know because you've been living here for so long but there's life out here and i got the keys i unlock the door there it is The doors wide open do you want to walk through it but we have the choice as to whether or not we walk through it it's like that guy in john chapter 5 that man who had that infirmity for 38 years and he was waiting to be put in the pool at the exact time that the angel would come down and stir the water so he could be healed infirmity for 38 years i got no one to put me into the pool jesus says to him do you even want to be made well do you want to be made well he's not going to force you to be made well he asks you if you want to be made well do you want to continue on in this lifestyle of bondage? Or do you want to be delivered? Do you want to be freed? Or do you want to be in the prison? It's up to you. I have the power. I have the means. I have the willingness and ability to make you well. But I'm not going to force you out of your prison. you got to make that choice. We all have to answer that question. Do I really want to be made well? Do I want to be freed, Or do I want to continue on in the prison? See... We were born in the prison. So the prison is what we know. It's comfortable. It's convenient. I know what to expect in the bondage of sin. I know what to expect with this old lifestyle. But if I walk out of those jail cell doors, what's out there? There's a lot of unknowns. There's a a, a lot of things that, that I don't understand. But Jesus says... If you walk out of those jail cell doors, you know what waits for you? Freedom. You know what waits for you? An adventure of faith. And yes, there are going to be unknowns and there are going to be obstacles. And no longer will you be able to depend on yourself. you got to depend on me. It's going to be different. It's going to look different. But this is freedom. Living in the prison isn't freedom. You convince yourself that it is, but it isn't. You convince yourself that it because because that's what you know and because it's comfortable. But he says, hey, 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 I got another life for you out here. Now, now, I'm not just talking about somebody who doesn't know the Lord. I'm talking about believers as well. Sometimes we get into these areas or we fall into these patterns where Jesus, he's freed us from all these other things. But there's an area of our life that we're still in bondage to. There's an area of our life that we're still in prison to. And we hold on to that area of our life because it's comfortable. It's what we know. Jesus, you can have all these other sins you can have all these other things, but not this. I want this. I cling to this. I hold on to this. I'll give you everything else but this. Jesus says, you want to be freed from that? I got so much more for you. You're robbing yourselves of the blessings that I have for you. You're robbing yourself from the adventure of faith that I have for you. You're, You're missing out. On all that I want for you because you're so comfortable in your jail cell. The door's wide open. Just walk out. All you have to do is take a step of faith and walk out. Christ makes those free who actually want to be free. So Paul says... Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. This yoke of bondage. He's referring to the law. The rabbis taught during that time period that the Mosaic law was a yoke. Paul makes it clear. Yeah, it's a yoke, but it's a yoke of bondage. So he gives us an illustration. Picture an oxen. Trying to pull this insurmountable amount of weight. Picture you being an ox oxen. And you're trying to pull God's plow that weighs 1 million tons. I don't care how big of an oxen you are. You are not budging that plow. So what happens when you try to budge the plow? You're trying with all your might, all your energy, all your effort. And that thing is not moving. Not one inch. Not one millimetre. It leads to frustration, it leads to irritability, it it leads to anger, it leads to self-defeat, it leads to this place where we feel like we're failures and Paul says that's what you're doing when you're trying to live according to the law, when you're basing your relationship with God on what you do for God instead of what he's done for you, that's what you're doing. He says, you're putting yourself under this yoke, this yoke of bondage. Peter, in Acts chapter 15, says it like this, same topic, Judaizers saying, hey, you need to keep the Mosaic law. you need to be circumcised, you need to become a Jew in order to be saved. Peter responds, And he says in Acts chapter 15, verse 10, Now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? You guys, we've been failing at this thing our whole lives. We grew up under the law. None of us can say that we've kept it, that we've all broken it. Jesus delivered us from it. He's the only one that can pull the plow. He's the only one that can do it. Why do you keep trying to do it? You can't earn God's affection. You can't earn his love. If that's your mentality, you're just going to get frustrated. You're going to get irritated. You're trying to do something that you simply can't do. You can't pull one million tons. I don't care how strong you are. That's why Jesus did it. So you would recognize, I can't. Uh, My responsibility is to receive his love, received that act of him pulling the plow all the way up to Calvary's hill and dying on a cross for my sins, for my mistakes, because I couldn't pull it, I couldn't budge it, but he did. Paul's saying, why are you returning to this yoke of bondage? It's unnecessary, it's ridiculous. You cannot fulfill the law. You cannot budge the yoke. Galatians chapter 5, verse 2. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. One of the requirements that the Judaizers were putting on the Gentile Christians was that if they really wanted to be saved, they had to be circumcised. Let me show you again. It's in Acts chapter 15. It says that exactly in Acts chapter 15, verse 1. It says, and certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Why did they think this? Why did they believe this? Why did they believe that you had to be circumcised to be saved? Well, the answer goes way back to Genesis chapter 17. Circumcision was a part of the Abrahamic covenant. Remember when God made that promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 that he would bless him with the land of Canaan, that he would make uh, many nations come from him, he'd be the father of many nations, he'd bless his descendants, but he also said that he would bless his seed, that through his seed he'd bless all the families of the earth. So there's really three parts to that promise mainly. But part of this later on, God says, hey, you're going to... Be circumcised and have all the males, the children and the servants get circumcised as a mark of the covenant. This is a mark that you've been set apart unto God, that you're different than the rest of the world. However, it was just a sign. It was an outward expression of an internal heart towards God. Faith in God, we trust God, we trust God to fulfill his promise. This is what it was really about. So Paul makes it clear here that circumcision, it can't save you. If you become circumcised, Paul says, Christ will profit you nothing. Circumcision doesn't save. Now, Paul is not saying that circumcision in and of itself is wrong. Okay? He's saying the reason for you being circumcised determines whether circumcision is wrong. Meaning, if you have your son or sons or you personally get circumcised because you think that work in your flesh is going to make you any more right with God, then it profits you nothing. It does nothing for you. Now, if you get circumcised for some medical reason or whatever the case may be, now that's a different story. These people specifically Are going to get circumcised. Because they think that their salvation hinges upon whether or not they're being circumcised. So Paul says. If you go and get circumcised for that reason. Christ will profit you nothing. In other words you can't have it both ways. Either you trust in Christ's perfect work. Through his death and resurrection. Either you put your faith in his work on the cross. Or You put your faith in your own works, which we know through your own works, you can't be justified. In other words, if you're putting your faith in your circumcision, what you're doing is putting your faith in your own works. And if you think that you can perform a work, which will ultimately grant you salvation. Then Christ profits you nothing. If you try to save yourself then Christ can't save you, in other words, if you're trying to save yourself, Christ cannot save you. When we try to add to his work on the cross, then his work no longer does us any good. It profits us, Paul says, nothing. He says here in verse 3, and I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. If you are being circumcised in an effort to make yourself right with God, then you must keep the entire law, all 613 laws. If you think circumcision is going to save you, and you perform that act of circumcision under the faith and assumption that your works will bring you salvation, you are required to keep the entire law. He's telling them, I think you're signing up for more than you bargained for because it doesn't extend at circumcision you got to continue to perform work after work after work after work in fact you got to keep the whole law that's a problem why because nobody could keep the law nobody could do it none of us we can't keep the law we can't live up to god's perfect standard Every time we try, we fail and fail over and over and over again. However, with the law, when we fail, there's a curse associated with it. So when I break the law, I'm cursed. The wages of sin is death. There was a requirement, a sacrifice, the spilling of blood if I broke the law. So we see the law holds sinners in an infinite debt. The law holds sinners in an infinite debt. Why? Why? Every time I break it, i got to make up for it. And I can't stop breaking it, so i got to attempt to make up for it for eternity. Well, I'm never going to be able to make up for it. I'll never be able to pay the price. I'll never be able to make myself right with God. It's impossible. But this is what Paul's saying. If you go that route, you're putting yourself completely under the law. And you're required to keep the whole thing, not just circumcision. Paul discusses circumcision further in Romans chapter two helps us understand really what circumcision is all about in Romans chapter two verse 25 he says for circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law <laughs> it's profitable if you keep the entire law but if you are a breaker of the law your circumcision has become uncircumcision therefore If an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who, even with your written code and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor a circumcision, that which is an outward outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew, listen, this is the point, who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. In other words, God is more concerned about your heart than your foreskin. That's been his concern since the beginning of time. He knows cutting off your foreskin is not going to change your heart. Only he can change your heart. And He wants you to have a change of heart. All the works in your flesh will not change your heart. All your efforts to appease God, to win His affections, those won't change your heart. Once again, only Jesus can change our heart. And He wants to continue to change our heart. And this is what the circumcision is all about. Circumcision of the heart. Cutting away that reproductive part of our heart. That continues to flare up that part of our heart that it seems like will never change. That that part of our heart that we won't let God inside. God, you can have most of my heart, 90%, but this 10%, this part, you can't have. He says that 10%. We need to cut it away. We need to do away with it. Why? Because that reproductive part of your heart is causing disease. It's causing problems. It's causing destruction. So you need to cut it away. You need to wipe it away. But I'm only going to cut away that part of your heart. If you invite me to cut it away. I'm not going to force you to do it. I want to do it with you. I want you to invite me. To cut away those pieces of your heart. That aren't glorifying me. And when we do that. When we allow the Lord. To cut away those parts of our heart. That aren't glorifying him. Then we can truly experience the freedom that he desires for. A circumcision is of the heart. That was the primary point all along. Galatians chapter 5 verse 4. You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. He says you've been estranged from Christ this word uh, in the Greek is katargeo, okay and it means literally to be cut off or severed he's saying you've you've severed your relationship with Christ you've cut off your relationship with Christ now he's using this word specifically for a reason why because circumcision had it had to do with cutting off the foreskin or severing the foreskin now for the Jew as I kind of mentioned earlier, for the Jew, when they were circumcised, the males were to be circumcised on the eighth day. Uh, That's when the blood would coagulate. Uh, Regardless of that, uh, what they were doing in that act of circumcision, they were setting apart their children from the world because the Jews were supposed to live a different life than the rest of the world. They weren't supposed to blend in. They were always supposed to stand out. Also, though, when a Jewish male was circumcised... If later on they rejected the covenant with God, they rejected a relationship with God that they refused to keep God's covenant, keep his commandments, then they would be cut off from the congregation. Paul, he flips it around and he says the opposite. Actually, your circumcision is both cutting you off from a relationship with Christ and it's also cutting you off from the congregation, from the body of Christ. Your efforts to be justified by cutting off your foreskin is actually damaging your relationship with the Lord. It's cutting off your relationship with Christ, he says. When we turn back to a life of trying to earn God's love, of trying to earn Christ's affections, don't get it twisted. We're not growing closer to God. We're getting further away from God. If I assume that I need to climb this mountain to meet God at the top of the mountain, and I'm working every day to climb this mountain to reach God at the top, because if I, I think at the top of that mountain, that's where God's love is for me, and that's where I'm going to experience it the most. I got it all backwards. No, God, he already climbed off his mountain. He left his heavenly abode, and he proved his love for me on the cross. I simply receive it. I can't earn it. I can't work for it. It doesn't matter how high I get on that mountain. He's not going to love me anymore or any less. If I fall down the mountain. He's going to love me just the same. Regardless of what I do. So when I assume that I have to earn God's love. The Bible says you're not getting closer to God's love. You're getting further away. You've cut yourself off from Christ. You're separating yourself from Christ. What we're actually saying without saying it. We fall into this lifestyle is that the cross wasn't enough. Lord, I gotta compensate the cross. So maybe the cross covered 80, 90% of my sins. Maybe it made me 80 to 90% right with God, but I gotta cover that 10 to 20%. And I'm gonna cover that by my works. I'm gonna cover that by my performance. I'm gonna cover that by my achievements. Because yeah, God, I know you loved me, but there's part of it that I have to earn, right? Why do we think that way? Because it's every relationship in our life that we think, what, you you meet a guy or a girl and what do you start doing? You start trying to woo them. You start trying to, maybe you buy them flowers or or presents or you take them out to dinner and you speak, write these love letters or whatever the case may be. What are you you trying to do? I'm trying to earn their love. I'm trying to, to woo them to love me. This is not a relationship with God. We don't woo Him. He woos us. He woos us. Through the cross, by the Holy Spirit. And we can't woo Him to love us anymore. That doesn't mean that we're not called to live for Him. We are. Well, when we assume that what I do determines how much God loves me, then we got it all wrong. We got it all twisted. That is not a biblical understanding of grace. It's the opposite. This mentality... It breaks God's heart. He paid it all because he already loved us. But some of us believe the lie that we need to earn God's love. We need to do something so God will love us more. So I have to come to church and I have to do this and I have to do that and I have to do this. If you're doing it to earn God's love, then you're doing it for the wrong reason. If you're doing it because I've already received God's love and I know how much God loves me and I just want to spend time with him at church and I just want to spend time in prayer and my devotions and in fellowship and all these different things, then you're doing it for the right reason. But if you're doing it to earn God's love, then you're doing it from the wrong reason. And Paul says here, look back at verse 4. You become estranged, cut off, severed from Christ. You attempt to be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. This is point number two. To fall from grace is to deny freedom. To fall from grace is to deny freedom. Now, falling from grace in this text is not talking about a Christian who's falling Into sin. That's not what he's talking about. Nor is he talking about someone who loses their salvation. You can't lose your salvation. We're sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. No one can pluck us out of his hand. Okay. He's speaking of someone specifically, who has turned their backs on the grace of God, they have fallen into this legalistic lifestyle, and they truly believe that God's love must be earned, that my salvation is contingent upon my works. Paul says that person has fallen from grace. Anyone who rejects that salvation comes by grace, through faith, in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who. Every Rejects the fundamental tenets of the gospel and assumes that they have to do something to earn their salvation. Paul says, You've fallen from grace. You never truly believed the gospel to begin with. I do not believe that a true believer can fall from grace. However, I do believe that a true believer, hmm, I'm like, do I get it? If I put it back here, it's going to spill everywhere. I do believe that a true believer can turn their backs on the grace of God, which is different. To turn my back on the grace of God, perhaps it would be for a season. It could come in the form of perfectionism. I assume that if I don't live this perfect lifestyle, if I don't live this perfect standard, maybe it's not even God's standard, maybe it's my standard, then God's not going to love me or he's going to love me less. If I'm not the father or mother or son or daughter or husband or wife or co-worker or worker, whatever the case may be, if I don't live up to the roles and the standards that I've laid out in these roles, then I assume that I lost my value. Turning our backs on the grace of God is this. I assume that my value is in my performance. I assume that my value is in what I do for God instead of recognizing my value is not in what I do for God, it's in what God has done for me. That's grace. That's receiving the love of God. Regardless of whether I measure up or don't measure up, regardless of whether I'm spiritually successful or a spiritual failure, God loves me just the same. Our value is measured on what Jesus did for us on the cross and he thought you as an individual was worth dying for. That's how much value he placed on you as an individual. That's how much value he sees that you have. Regardless of what you think about yourself, regardless of the lies that you believe about yourself, Uh, I'm no good. I'm never going to measure up. I'm never going to meet the standard. Uh, I'm always going to fall short, regardless of what you think about yourself. Jesus thought that you were worth dying for. That's where your value comes from. It comes from him, not from you, not from your perspective, not even from what your wife or husband says about you, not from what your kids say about you or your employer or your coworkers. That's not what your values in. Your value was declared and determined by God's grace displayed for you on the cross. He said, you're worth dying for. That's what he says. The text continues, Galatians chapter 5, verse 5. For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. Point number three. Faith hopes in the righteousness to come. Faith hopes in the righteousness to come. Now, we've already discussed that each and every one of us who accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, the Bible says that we are declared righteous by faith. We are justified by faith, meaning we are declared perfectly righteous in the sight of God. However, if we're honest with ourselves, we all know that we don't live perfectly righteous lifestyles, right? Uh, We don't all live perfectly righteous. But there's a reality that we're declared perfectly righteous. There's also a reality that this righteousness that we have been declared as and defined by. We actually will become this one day. Uh, on the day of judgment, we long for the time that God, when he comes back for us or we die, to be with him. On the day of judgment, we long for, we hope for this moment when Jesus will say, You're perfectly righteous. Righteous. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into my joy. Not because of what you did, but because of what Jesus did for you. We see that in this moment, when Jesus comes back for us, or we go to be with him through death, we see that not only will we be declared perfectly righteous, but we will become perfectly righteous. In John chapter 3 verses 1 to 3, it says, behold, this is John speaking, John the Apostle. He's like 80, 90s at this point, And this is how he's speaking. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. His mind is still blown about it. He doesn't get bored of the fact that he's called a, children, a child of God. He never gets bored with God's love for him. He's still ecstatic about it. He's still excited. It's still mind-boggling to him. Oh my gosh, 80 or 90 years old and, and I still can't believe how much God loves me that He'd be, call me a child of God. But with that, there comes a promise. He says, there's going to come a day where we see Him and we'll be like Him. We'll be transformed into His image perfectly. Not only are we declared perfectly righteous, there's going to come a day where we'll actually be perfectly righteous. We'll be just like Jesus. Morally. Character-wise, we'll see Him as He is. We'll become just like Him. As believers, we know we're not perfect. And we won't be perfected completely until Jesus comes back for us or we go and die to be with Him. However, we have this hope, this confident expectation that it's going to happen, that we are going to be perfect one day, just like Him. But He says here in Galatians chapter 5, this is important, verse 5, For we, through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith this hope we have is through the spirit the the faith that hopes in the righteousness to come is given by the spirit it's a gift from the spirit he gives each one a measure of faith the holy spirit first awakens us to the reality of who jesus is that we're sinners in need for a savior that he truly is god in the flesh the holy spirit also gives us the faith to follow him, the faith to, to continue on in this lifestyle of being dependent and dominated by him. And so he says in Galatians chapter five or six. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. He says, listen, guys, whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised, whether you keep the law or break the law. Your salvation is not contingent upon what you do for the Lord. It's contingent upon what he did for you. Salvation comes from, as he says here, for in Christ Jesus. Salvation comes from being in Christ Jesus. How to do we uh, come to this place where we're in Christ Jesus? It's by, by putting faith in him. By, by putting sincere trust in him. By accepting him into our life. Because not only does he abide in us, we're called to abide in him. We can be secure in our salvation if we're in Christ because he's in us, It's not about circumcision or uncircumcision, keeping the law, breaking the law. It's about faith in Jesus Christ. And then he says here, look at the end of verse six. It's about faith, but faith working through love. Paul makes it clear that the only type of faith that is worth anything is a faith that manifests itself Through love. This is point number four. Final point. Faith works through love. Faith works through love. In 1 Corinthians 13.7. It says that love. Believes all things. Okay. This whole idea of faith. Working through love. It doesn't start start with us, it starts with Jesus. Jesus is the example of faith working through love. And how did Jesus' faith work through love? Well, let me tell you, it was like this. Jesus believed that through his display of love on the cross, he believed that through that act of love, he could perfect you. He believed that through the gospel, he could change you. He, he believed that through his death, burial and resurrection, he believed in his whole heart of hearts that he could make you something different than you are. The Bible says that through the gospel, Jesus was right, He believed that and it was true. In second Corinthians 5:17, it says that if anyone is, is in Christ, they're a new creation. old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. we're something new, we're something different in Christ. Jesus, He believed that His act of love on the cross could radically change your heart. It radically changed my heart. If Christ believes in His ability to perfect you, don't you think you should believe in His ability to perfect you? If Christ believes that through the work of the cross, He can complete you, He can make you whole, shouldn't we believe that through the cross, jesus can make us whole he can make us complete do you believe that christ can still change you that maybe you've been radically changed by christ but there's still an area of your life a, a, a bondage there's an area of your life that it just keeps coming up over and over and over again it, it's that that spiritual foreskin that that just needs to be cut away it needs to be dealt with it needs to be done with it needs to be cut off yeah man there's been times i've tried cutting it away it just keeps coming back do you believe that Jesus can completely change you? Do you believe that He can perfect you? That even in the areas that you struggle with today, that He can change those areas. That, that He can change every aspect of your life. That he can continue to deliver you from the bondage that you keep finding yourself in. He, he can He can continue to deliver you from the prison cell that you keep walking back into christ believes that he can change us and that he believes through his death burial resurrection and ascension that he can perfect us then we should believe it too paul says he was confident in this in philippians 1 6 he says being confident in this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of jesus christ meaning jesus is never going to give up trying to change you he's going to never give up trying to perfect you But maybe sometimes we hinder that perfection process or that sanctification process because of a lack of faith. We don't trust that he can actually do it. Yeah, God, you could deliver me from addiction. You could deliver me from adultery. You could deliver me from sexual immorality. But you can't deliver me from this vice. You can't deliver me from these other things. If God could deliver you from that stuff, what's stopping him from delivering you from this stuff? Maybe nothing's stopping him. Maybe you're stopping him. Maybe it's the questions, maybe it's the doubts, maybe it's the faith. See, he says faith is to work itself through love. Faith looks like something. Faith should look like following the example of Jesus, namely walking in love. Ephesians 5.1 says, therefore, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also loved us and has given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a sweet smelling aroma. This is what we're called to do. We're called to imitate him. We're called to walk as he walked, to love as he loved. Our faith is to express ourselves through a, a deep love for God and a sincere love for others. Both of those things, not just one, both of them. Love is the outworking of genuine faith. And Jesus made this clear when the lawyer came to him in Mark chapter 12. He asked him, hey, what are the greatest commandments? And Jesus says in Mark chapter 12 verses 30 to 31, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what faith looks like. That's what God's calling us to. That's how faith should express itself in our life. Love is the byproduct of faith. It starts with faith, me believing that Jesus is who he says he is. He pours out that love on me, and he gives me that power to 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 walk in love. See, love is the end of our faith in second Peter one five to seven. It says, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge uh, self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. He says, add to your faith ultimately love. That's the end of it. That's what it's actually supposed to look like. If our faith in Christ doesn't produce love, then it's not a biblical faith. I'm sorry. It's something different. Maybe it's an intellectual faith. Maybe it's some other type of faith, but it's not a biblical faith. It says faith works itself through love. See, Paul, he wants us to experience freedom. That's why he's telling us faith works itself through love. We experience freedom when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. But genuine faith in Jesus Christ will express itself through love. See, Jesus, he didn't just free us from our sins. He freed us from ourselves. He freed us from ourselves. He he freed us from this selfish mentality, uh, from this assumption that freedom is all about me. Uh, I want the freedom to be left alone so I can pursue my happiness, so I can pursue my pleasure. Jesus wants us to deliver us from that definition of freedom. He wants us, wants to deliver us from that, that selfish perspective. Biblical freedom, it looks like loving God and loving others. If we're experiencing bondage in this life, then I assure you that it has to do with selfishness. It's rooted in selfishness. E- either there's a disconnect between me and my love for God, or I'm not experiencing His love for me. Because I've stepped outside of the love for God. Uh, or. I'm not loving on other people. Because this is the gateway to freedom. Loving God. And loving others. Freedom. Is not. Focusing on myself. And trying to. Build a life. For myself. In such a way that I can experience this. Worldly pleasure. Pleasure. This pursuit of happiness. No. The freedom that the Bible teaches, it comes from serving God and serving other people. If we're not serving God and serving other people, then we're in bondage, and we have a false perspective of what freedom is. This is the freedom that grace offers. But we've got to choose whether we want it or not. What's holding us back? Maybe there's an area of bondage in my life that I won't let go of. Maybe I'm so selfish that that, that I keep holding on to this thing. Yeah, God, I'll give you this, but not not this other thing. What's the bondage that's holding you back? Do you want to be made well? Are you willing to let go of your selfishness in order to experience the freedom that grace offers? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you died for our freedom. Lord, and you offer so much freedom for us, God, and we know we don't earn it, we don't fight for it, we simply receive it. God, but sometimes we fight against it, and we turn back to yokes of bondage of various kinds, whether it's legalism, perfectionism, or some other vice in our life, and I pray that you would deliver us, God, from our bondage, but that you would put such a desire in our hearts, a willingness to want to be delivered, God, that we'd be tired of it, that we'd be sick of it, God, that we would be ready to to turn from areas of our life that we find ourselves continuing to fall back into bondage. Lord, so give us that heart, give us that desire. We pray for an anointing of your spirit. As you say, where the spirit of the Lord is there is liberty. God, so I pray that we would be people that are dominated by your spirit, that we walk in your spirit, that we wouldn't see uh, the leading of your spirit as suggestions or options, but we would see that as uh, commandments and direction to experience the freedom that you desire for us. You're asking us to do things for us, not to hurt us, but to help us. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.